following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do want to pray for Teresa and for Tim, for Christina. We thank you, Lord, that they've... uh, shown a desire to be part of this body and pray lord that through that you would encourage and bless them ask to god for your hand to be upon those who have traveled up to challenge lord that you would use them in great ways lord use them to be an encouragement to your saints there and use them to be a a light father to the lost in that community and lord bless them as they um, do the children's um, bible school and as they uh, reach out to the community as they serve others in the body there Lord, protect them. Father, give them a safe journey home next weekend. Got to want to ask and plead with you and beg that you would use the evangelism team here at Calvary. Thank you for Steve and Bob and the others. Bless them, Lord. Use them in great ways as they proclaim your message of truth here in Burbank. Lord, I pray that, God, you would stir up more of us to participate in that a wonderful ministry and opportunity. Bless now your word. We depend on your spirit to give us understanding, Lord, and to help us apply it. In His, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're back in Joel today, and I uh, thought it would be appropriate, given the theme of Joel, it introduced to you Bert, Bert the Locust here. He's a very key component of this book of Joel. In connection with the theme of our passage this morning in Joel, in Joel chapter 2, I'm reminded of a story. It's a story of a young man, a young man who had been raised by a caring and loving father. But one day, the young man had enough. He wanted his freedom. He wanted to be out on his own. So he went to his father, and he demanded that his father give him his inheritance. It was a request that was not only unconventional, but also hurtful. Because in essence, his son was saying, Dad, I I really wish you were dead. I just want to get on with life, so give me the money. And despite that, the father did give him money. And after that, the son immediately took off. He went to live the high life, left to a land far away. He completely squandered all of his money, squandered it on gambling, on parties, on entertainment, on immorality. It didn't take long before he was flat broke, living a life of complete debauchery. He'd become a total disgrace to how he was raised. He was a shame to his father and to his family. He had nothing, no money, so he went looking for work. He ended up uh, finding a job as a farmhand, making less than minimum wage. It got so bad, he wasn't able to eat consistently. He wasn't making enough money to do that, that it was so bad that he even saw the pig slop, that he was feeding the pigs as something that was desirable to eat. And that's when he hit bottom. That's when he came to his senses. That's when he realized the wrong he had done, not only in wasting all of the money, but in the fact that he'd become a total reprobate. So he resolved at that moment that he was going to go back to his dad. He was going to ask him for a job. And on the long journey home, the young man kept thinking about all he had done. He was filled with shame and regret. He kept rehearsing over and over in his mind what he would say to his dad when he got home. He wondered what his father would do. He knew that he was no longer worthy to be his son. And he finally got to his hometown And he was still some distance away from his father's house. But he was shocked to see his dad coming out of nowhere and grabbing him and kissing him and embracing him. So full of joy that his son had returned. It turns out his father had been looking to the horizon day after day in hopes of seeing his son again one day. With great compassion, he forgave him and then threw him a joyous celebration. I'm sure by now most of you realize this is not a story that I made up. This is one that Jesus told. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable, the the son, if you'll remember, he represents whom? Who does he represent? You and me, us, lost sinners, those who are in rebellion against the father, those who have sought to live their own life apart from him in sin. And the father represents in Christ's story whom? God himself. And in this parable, Jesus portrays God as seeking the lost sinner, as God looking upon the sinner with great compassion and even humbling himself in a shocking way 
to run after the sinner, to embrace and rejoice at his repentance. And if Jesus' parable tells us anything about God, it tells us that God is one who desires reconciliation. It tells us that God is one who wants to restore, a God who's even willing to humble himself to make that happen. This parable was given, this wonderful parable, it was given and, and it shows that some, nothing has changed about God. Some people see God in the New Testament differently than the Old, right? And they'll use an example like this and say, now God's nicer in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. He's the same reconciling God of the parable of the prodigal son as he was all through the Old Testament. And we're going to see that today in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. So if you could please turn there if you haven't already. Before we read verses 18 to 27, I want to review real quickly where we're at so that we, those of you maybe didn't get a chance to listen to the first couple of weeks on this. Joel began in chapter 1 by describing how, how Bert and about 50 billion of his closest friends decided to visit Israel one day. And as locusts do, they don't ask to be invited to dinner. They just come and eat. And that's exactly what happened. And Joel chapter 1 describes the devastation that this plague of locusts as wave after wave of these insects went through the land of Judah and completely devastated it, completely devoured all of its vegetation. And not only that, to make matters worse, there was a drought which came upon the land as well. So the the land was completely parched and dry. The ground was bare. And so God sent Joel, the prophet Joel, to deliver a message to the people and to graciously explain to them what had happened and why. And to tell them that this plague, as bad as it was, was only a a harbinger, a foreshadowing of an even worse devastation that would come upon them if they did not turn back to God. That in the day of the Lord, greater judgment would come upon them. And so, in doing that, Joel then calls them to repentance. And if we look to Joel chapter 2, verse 12, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, it is there where God says Himself, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. And then in verse 14, who knows whether he will not return, turn and relent and leave a blessing behind them. Here God says in response to what has happened to you and in response to what could happen if you don't change, turn, turn to me, rend your heart, be broken on the inside for your sin against God in hopes that God, who is gracious and merciful and compassionate, would turn from this judgment that he has brought and will bring. And so from chapter 1, the very beginning, all the way through 2.11, we see the urgency for genuine repentance. And then in 2.12 through 17, we see the nature of true repentance. Today we're going to look at 2.18 through 27, which really describe the blessings from true repentance. And if you would please stand as we read from the Word of God in Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. God speaking through His servant Joel says this, Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. And the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from you, And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its food, uh, excuse me, foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. And the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am Yahweh your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Thank you. You may be seated. So here we see at this point in Joel, the people 
are given hope. They are shown a way out. And here we see that true repentance, if they were to respond in in genuine sorrow and brokenness over their sin, that that is the key that opens the storehouse of God's restoration. Joel begins in verse 18 with the statement, Then Yahweh, or the Lord, will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. A New American Standard and a New International Version and some other translations translate that as future, as I read here. But if you have an ESV Bible, you may notice that it was translated in the past tense, that he became jealous and had pity. Believe me, that one verse gave me no end of uh, struggle this week and last week, trying to figure that out. And next week, I'll cover the reason for that. See, I'm dodging it. I'll give myself another week. But uh, we're going to focus, uh, so we'll talk about that next week because it really connects to what he has to say in verses 28 and on. But for now, I just want you to focus on the two verbs there, zealous and pity. Zealous is a word for, uh, literally, it had the idea of red or flushed. And it came to mean uh, and be applied to being jealous, to being having a passionate uh, zeal and fire uh, of jealousy. Pity here as the idea of being one to spare another from difficulty out of great compassion. And so these two words together are emotionally charged. They depict God's intense and passionate desire to respond to the truly contrite heart. Here we find in Joel 2, verses 18 to 27, three elements of God's restoration, three facets of God's reconciliation for repentant sinners. And that is the first restored resources, the second restored reputation, and the third restored relationship. And to display these elements, Joel employs a literary device within these verses. It's a device called a chiasm. Um, It's one that we may have talked about before in the past, but it's where a a verse or set of verses uh, makes a statement, and then the second half of that verse or set of verses basically makes the same statement, but in reverse order. It's a literary device. In fact, uh, uh, one of the most famous psalms, Psalm 51, uses a number of these chiasms. Let me show one to you here, if I can get to it. Verse 4, where it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That first line matches, the, the, the second line, excuse me, matches what the first line says, but he reverses the order. If you can see that, I tried to color code it for, uh, for those of you who are more visual. The first line I was brought forth... The first half of the first line is the same thing he's saying at the second half of the last line. My mother conceived me. But also, if you look at the second half of the first line in iniquity and the first half of the second line in sin, those express the same idea too, right? So there's this this parallelism going on, this mirroring effect. And it's done not only uh, to, to display a literary skill to make it more interesting to read, but it's done also to focus attention on what's being said here. And what's being said is like arrows pointing to the center statement. What was the theme of Psalm 51? Right? A desire for, uh, to be forgiven, right? An expression of sin, like David is expressing his sin. And here in verse 4, he draws key attention to that by saying, in, in sin I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin I was conceived. So this chiasm is a, a simple means to draw attention to what he's focusing on. It's a poetic device. Now sometimes... These verses that employ this technique or this device, uh, the center uh, lines are not two parallel lines, but are just one statement and draws even further emphasis on that central point. Here's one example in Isaiah 56, where he says, all you beasts of the field come to eat all you beasts in the forest. This is the original order word order in Hebrew. And again, the first line and the last line are essentially the same statement, right? But the center line stands by itself. And again, arrows are pointing to that center point within the context of that passage. Well, here in Joel 2, Joel takes the entire section, or God speaking through him, and does the same thing. I'll try to show this to you. I'll put this online. You can look at it in more detail later. But basically, the idea here is the the theme or the key point in verses 18 through 20 is the same idea and parallel thoughts that he gives in verses 25 through 27, but in reverse order. If you look at verse 18, the idea there, it's an introduction and God's desire to restore. That's linked to verse 27, which is a conclusion or the outcome of that restoration. 
And then verses 19 to 26 are also linked as both of them give a general statement of the restoration God will bring. Both of them have the statement, you will be satisfied. And also, too, that they will no longer suffer shame or reproach. And then the, the, third, uh, the third line there in verses 20 and 25, those are also connected to one another where uh, God discusses in verses 20 and 25 what he will do regarding the locust plague and the devastation that it had brought. And then finally, in the center, verses 21 to 24, those all embody the specifics of the restoration, specifically the physical restoration. Now, why am I going through all of this? What's the point? Is this a, a class on Hebrew literary techniques and devices? No, not really, but it's, to, it's for, reasons, for a couple of things. One is you should be looking for this kind of thing as you study your Bibles, particularly when you're in Hebrew poetry is to, to look for these statements where something is repeated and it's repeated in a different way because it, it draws attention and emphasis to the point being made by the author. But also, too, if you think about it in Joel 2, right? The, he's already said, uh, God's brought this devastation. You need to repent before further devastation comes. He could have just said in response to their repentance, you know, if, if you repent, I'll fix all that I've destroyed. Uh, I'll bless you. Things will be made right again. And then move on, right? God could have said that. That's kind of the point he's making. But he doesn't do that. He arranges his response in this way to poetically express and to emphasize the importance it is to him to be reconciled and his desire to restore them. Just saying it in a few words in a simple way, you could read it and move on. But here within this, God is saying for for all that has happened, the plague, the drought, the famine, the shame, the indignity. All of this has happened because of your sin. And the plague was brought in order to move you to repentance. And oh, how I wish and long for and desire to restore you if you would but repent. There's passion and emotion within this passage. And that's why it's arranged this way. God wants to let them know with great energy, with great zeal, with great eagerness, He would fully restore them. He would restore their resources He would restore the reputation. And most importantly, he would restore the relationship. The center of this chiasm, as I mentioned, verses 21 to 24, gives the specifics of the physical restoration that God would bring. That's the first aspect we'll look at here is the restored resources or resources. Some people, you pronounce it that way? Resources. I guess that sounds more... Anyway, I like resources. S is sound. Okay, so anyway, verse 19. There he, God says, Behold, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil. And there in the Hebrew, it's important we can't miss the first two Hebrew words there are behold or hene. It's a, a statement, an exclamation. It's used often as an emotional exclamation. And then the next word is a, another word. It's a participle. In this case, in verse 19, it's the verb sending. And these two words together, hene with the participle, are given in Hebrew in the Old Testament as a formula in order to emphasize and communicate immediacy. What God is saying here in doing this is that he is ready to restore. There's an eagerness to restore. He's basically saying the second you repent, I guarantee an immediate response. Behold, I'll immediately send grain, new wine, and oil. It's the picture of the Father Straining his eyes, night after night, waiting for his son to return. And when he sees him, he'll immediately run and embrace him. That's the God we serve. One who's quick to respond to a contrite heart. One who is ready and eager to embrace with arms open wide, a face full of joy. He's not a God that stands back and kind of folds his arm with a furrowed brow when you come to him from brokenness and say, well, okay, let's just see how things go. That's not him. Verse 19, God declares that the first thing he would restore would be their grain, their new wine, and their oil. These were staple resources in the Hebrew economy and in the ancient Near East in general. Not only were they important for food, but also for commerce and also for health to sustain their, even, their lives. If you remember back in Joel 1.10, it said there that the field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, and the oil, fresh oil fails. The locusts had cleaned them out, and the drought had come in after that, 
dried up everything. Their livelihood was gone. But God says here, if you would but repent, if you would genuinely turn to me, you'll be restored. Notice in verse 19, God says you'll be satisfied. That word means to have one's fill of drink, to eat or drink to one's fill. They'd have all that they needed is the idea. And that same word down in verse 24, uh, excuse me, the same ideas in the parallel verse where God says in verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. You see, God's saying here, I'm not going to dole it out in increments, give you a, a little bit, lead you on. I'll fully restore all that you had lost. And it's important to see this, particularly these three terms, because it echoes back to uh, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God had made with his people. Deuteronomy 7.13. Moses reminded them of this when he said, If the people were faithful to the Lord, he would bless the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine, and your oil. There would be signs of a restored relationship. And to restore the land, notice God says in verse 20 that he would wipe out that which devastated it. It says there the, that he literally refers to uh, uh, the invaders as the northerner. Singular. Army might be in some of your translations. It's not in the original Hebrew. It's implied. And several commentators, if you allow me to take a side trail here for a minute, it's important to understand. The northerner here, some think, is referring to human invaders. It was a technical term often used for those who would come in and invade Israel typically came in through the north. That would happen later with Assyria and Babylon. It was an, an easier, more navigating, navigatable, navigatable. See, more than three syllables, I get in trouble. It was an easy route to navigate as they came into the land. Every week, isn't it? One word or two trip me up. Okay, anyway. Well, the northerner was seen as this an invading army. And so some believe that God, uh, that God is referring to, here to a human army. But I think if you look at the passage carefully, he's talking about the locusts of chapter 1. Because verses 18 to 27 talk about in detail the grain, the new wine, the oil, the pasture, the animals, the, the, the lack of water. All these specific things are things which he talked about in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, this future army that would come, none of this language is used. Also, too, if you look at verse 25, the parallel verse to verse 20, he talks about there where he says the, the swarming locust, the gnawing locust, the, what were the other terms that he used, the creeping, the stripping locust. That's a direct statement going back to chapter 1, verse 4 of the historical plague that hit. He uses those same four descriptions of the locust there. So I think he's specifically talking about the swarm of locusts they had experienced, not one that's coming in the future. And if you notice the description he gives there in verse 20, it's fairly graphic what he's going to do with these insects. He says that he's going to take the vanguard, the front of them, and he's going to pile them up in the sea in the east. You guys know, what is the sea in the east in Israel talking about? Which sea is that? Dead Sea. Very good. And then he talks about taking the rear of the swarm and dumping them into the sea to the west, which is what? Mediterranean. Good, that's right. And then he talks about the bulk of the swarm he's going to push into the dry and parched land. He's talking there about uh, the desert south of Judah. So it's interesting to think about this army of locusts that came in through the north. He's going to push into the eastern sea, into the Dead Sea, into the Mediterranean, and into the south. Every other direction they'll be pushed out of Israel. And then he says that the stench of their corpses will fill the air which is an interesting description that's often given for locusts historically, plagues that have drowned in the sea. If you remember in Exodus 10, there it says that locusts that were in Egypt, it says in verse 19 of chapter 10 that the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. There have been many observers over the years that have noted uh, piles of locusts that had swarmed in the land, drowning in the Red Sea and, and then piling up on the shore three and four feet high. Jerome, in the 4th century, described a swarm of locusts that was uh, driven into the Dead Sea and in the Mediterranean by a strong wind. And then he tells of the beaches being filled with their rotting heaps that led to disease within the land, a disease among the animals and the people. Another one in the City of God, a book Augustine wrote in the early 5th century. He also talks about a plague that hit Africa and had drowned in the sea and how the tens of thousands of people actually died from the disease from the insects that were rotting on the shore. And I better stop there because no one's going to want lunch if I keep going. 
but you get the idea. God's saying, I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to remove them completely from the land. Verse 25, he says that he would make up, that he would repay or restore or repair the years the locusts had eaten. Years there, I don't think is necessarily referring to how long the locusts had been there, but the effect and the impact. They not only lost the harvest of that year, but remember back in chapter 1, it talked about they had no seed, nothing in their storehouses for the years to come. And so God here promises that he would restore. Verses 21 to 24 describes how he would make up for the devastation. And there, he, in a poetic fashion, he, he addresses the land and the beasts and also people and describes to them how he will respond. He says in verse 21 to the land, he speaks there to tell them to rejoice. If you remember back in chapter 110, in fact, I read the verse a little earlier where it said there that the, the land, the field was ruined and the land mourned. Well, here he says, no longer mourn land, but rejoice. Don't fear any other f- further ruin to come. At the end of verse 21, he tells the land, Yahweh has done great things. Which if you look back at the end of verse 20, he made the same statement about the locusts, that they had done great things. What he's saying here is just as the locust had come in to the land and caused damage beyond measure... So I will come into the land if you would repent and I would cause restoration beyond measure. Verse 22, God addresses the beasts of the field. Again, if you hearken back to chapter 1, verse 18, where it said there that the beasts were groaning, that the cattle were wandering around aimlessly because there was no pasture. There was nothing for them to eat. And so God says here in verse 22 that he would restore the pastures, that he would cause the tree uh, and the vine to yield fruit. So that those pesky deer could go and eat the fruit off of your trees. They do that. There's just uh... Anyway, he's going to provide. Then in verse 23, he moves to the third group affected by the plague, the people of Israel. And it's interesting there, he calls them the sons of Zion. It's a term used only two other times in the Old Testament. And I find it interesting that, that he would do that. I think he's reminding them of the covenant, the covenant between he and his people. In chapter 12, verse 1, he describes there the vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate and the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Their sons of men is just a term for humans. But I find it interesting they are described there in that way in the plague. But here, when God holds out a promise to restore, he calls them sons of Zion. As if to say, in your sin, as a result of that, The plague has brought these things upon you, O men. But remember, you are my people. We have made a covenant. If you would but follow me and worship and trust in me, that I would care for you. See, the plague had stripped the land, right? Stripped it of all the vegetation. The the drought had sapped out all of the moisture. And just as the land was dry, so too were the spirits of the people. Right? We could understand that, right? You had nothing to eat. If you looked outside your window and you saw dry fields, no hope for the future... Right, It says there in Joel 1, in verse 12, that rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Not only were their mouths parched, so too were their hearts. But repentance would change all of that. God says here in 2.23, Rejoice and be glad. No longer may your souls be dried up with sorrow. Let them be drenched with joy. And we see that as he describes the rains coming. Again, imagine yourself in their shoes. How would you feel about a statement like that? As the dust is being kicked up outside your door. And it's God to say, if you but repent, I will bring rain and plenty of it. He talks here about the early rain. That is the autumn rains that come from October to December to, to allow, give nutrients to the soil, to allow the seeds to germinate and to sprout and grow. The latter rain he mentions here are the spring rains in in March and April that are vital for the plants to to, uh, achieve their full maturity. And God says, I will bring it and I'll bring plenty of it. The language he's using here, it's very important to understand. This is very specific. Let me read to you again back to the covenant God had made with his people as Moses expresses it to the people before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 11, 13. He says there, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today to love the Lord, your God, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then 
He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. Sounds a lot like what we've just been reading in Joel, right? That's intentional. God's reminding them of the promise He had made to them before. Stay faithful to me and I will care for you. I'll give you the rain that you need. You'll have plenty and be provided for, specifically the grain, the new wine, and the oil. And then in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 11, he said this, He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat, be satisfied. Almost the exact same phrase he describes twice in Joel 2, verse 26, and also in verse 19 where he says they would be satisfied, they would be satiated. And then verse 26 says, in turn, this would produce joy as they would praise God as they have been called to do. There's a much different picture given here in these verses than the one given in Joel chapter 1. And Joel 1.16 had said, Has not the food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. Again, the picture there is in reading that first chapter was not only were they out of food, not only were they out of, uh, of drink, not only were they out of anything to, to barter with, but they had no joy. They had nothing to bring God. But here God promises that repentance would bring a total reversal. Before, it was the locusts that were doing the eating. God says, now you'll be the ones eating. Before, they went hungry. But now God says, you will be filled with plenty and fully satisfied. Before, they had no gladness in God. But now, they would give Him praise. In this section, God has given us a a detailed description. You may wonder, why does He spend so much time going through all this? He could have just said, I'll fully restore you. But again, in going through all of the specific after specific, detail after detail, even repeating himself. What's he doing here? Again, he's emphasizing something, isn't he? He's emphasizing his desire to fully restore. Again, to encourage them to come back. Encourage them to rend their hearts. Encourage them to be broken and contrite because of their sin. And God would fully bless not only would he bless in restoring their resources, he'd also bless in restoring their reputation. Look back up at verse 17 for a moment in chapter 2. This comes in the section of the call to repentance, and it ends with uh, God calling the priests to come before him in the temple and, and what they were to pray. And there were three specific uh, aspects to the prayer. One was that they, he would spare his people. The second, that he was no longer make them as a reproach. And third that he would respond to the, the issue that they were um, being described as among the nations. Uh, they were being accused of, where is their God? In fact, let me just read it. He says there, let them say, that is the priest, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? See, these are the three things that God addresses in verses 18 to 27. The first He says there, spare your people. Again, in verses 19 and 26, he shows sparing them from the devastation they'd suffered by saying, you'll be fully satisfied. You will have plenty to eat and be cared for. The second request they ask is, make us not a reproach among the nations. That reproach has the idea of being made a disgrace. They They were made to be taunted, to be mocked. Because again, back in those days... People in the ancient Near East saw a direct connection between your agricultural prowess and your relationship with your deity. And so as the nations would look around and see Judah, that the lands were totally devastated, there was no vegetation, there was nothing to eat, they'd be saying, your God's left you, what'd you guys do anyway? He's abandoned you. See, they they brought shame and reproach and disgrace upon themselves and were actually being taunted by other nations because of what had happened to them. It's exactly what the plague had done. But if they heeded God's call to repent, God says that shame would be removed. And he says here it would be removed for good. If you notice in verse 19, he says, I will never again make you an object of scorn. God repeats this promise two more times. Verses 26 and 27. If you look at the end of both of those two verses, he says, my people will never be put to shame. Again, that idea of permanence never again shame here is a synonym for the word reproach it again means to be disgraced or humiliated israel which had been a land rich in agriculture and was now a a wasteland full of parched earth uh, 
they had become shamed before the nations. It, it kind of reminded me of that. You remember Reepy Cheep, the little mouse in uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Remember after the great battle and his tail got lopped off? And he came before Aslan and he says, I am, I'm ashamed to even come before you because the, mal- the glory of mice has been removed from me. I don't remember how he said it. He said it better than that. But right, his tail was gone. Israel felt the same way. Their land had been decimated. Their tail had been lopped off. And they were fully exposed before those around them and filled with shame. But God says here three separate times, not anymore, Israel. If you would turn to me, never again will you be shamed. Rather than be the object of mockery, in fact, you'll be one of esteem and honor. We'll see that later as we go through the 12 and Zechariah in particular. How Israel and the Jews, the people from the nations, will be grabbing hold of them and saying, Take me to your God! It will happen. Reminds me of David's words in Psalm 3. His son Absalom had taken the throne from him and was now chasing him down. And David, as he describes his enemies taunting him, said this in verse 3, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Here in Joel 2, God says he would lift them from their shame and their humiliation. Again, the word shame here also has the connotation or the idea of of guilt over wrongdoing. And I think that would be appropriate here, that Israel had committed great sin in abandoning God, and they felt shame for that. Not only the shame being heaped upon them from the outside, but also the shame they would feel from the inside. God didn't take pleasure in sending those locusts to humiliate them. He cared for them enough to bring whatever was necessary to move them to repentance so that in their repentance he would be moved to restore. God would forever take away their guilt and shame, not just from the locusts, but also from their sin. Reminds me of those beautiful words in Isaiah 118 where after calling Israel to repentance, you remember these, he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they may become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be made They may become like wool, sheep's wool, white wool, pure. See, when God restores, he he doesn't paint over the old paint. He sandblasts it off so there's no trace of it anymore. It's wiped clean. And then he puts upon that wall, puts upon your heart, changes it, makes it new, white, glossy, no blemish, no mark, no stain. That's what restoration is, the restoration that God brings, a complete renewal. A clean slate. No guilt and no shame. God promises here for His people, if they would but repent, He would restore their reputation. He would restore their resources. But thirdly and most importantly, there's an ultimate restoration that God promises here. And you know, when we, we come across passages like this, especially in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about how God will bless them for faithfulness. And we can tend to focus on that, and a lot of people do. And ministries have been spawned from this idea that when you're right with God, He'll bless you. And in fact, if you give a little bit to us, He'll bless you even more. As if that's the goal of the Christian life, God's goodies. There are others even that would attach what you have and your prosperity to where you're at with God, just like the pagan nations back in Israel's day. But you see, that that's not the primary point of this passage. Yes, God loves to bless. And yes, God desires to give gifts, just like you and I do to our children. But we can't miss the point of what he's ultimately aiming at here in Joel 2. The restoration of resources, the restoration of reputation are wonderful things indeed. But the greatest restoration is with God Himself. To be right with Him. Look at the end of verse 17 again. The priest was to say, Why should the people say, Where is your God? See, that was the ultimate problem here. The land, yes, was devastated. Yes, they had no food, no water, no economy. Yes, they were humiliated before the nations. But the worst of it all, the greatest shame that they carried was the state of their relationship with God. To such an extent that even non-believers around them saw that there was a problem. Boy, you and your God, something must be wrong. They saw that the pagan nations around them would say that God had abandoned them, but actually it was the other way around, wasn't it? They had abandoned God. 
But God says here, if they would rend their hearts, not just their dried up land would be restored, but their dried up relationship would be restored. Look at verse 27. This is where this whole section is aiming in those last words in verse 27. God answers the question, where is your God? To a repentant people, he says, I'm right here. I will restore your land. I will honor you. And you will know then that I am in your midst, that I am with you, that you are my people. That you are mine. Note the personal references that are repeated here in these verses, verses 18 to 27. Twice he calls them his people. Twice he says, your God. Twice he says, my people. See what he's getting at here? The great tragedy of not having the grain or the wine or the oil wasn't just the hunger or the poverty that that they would bring about, but the fact that it was directly affecting their ability to worship God. We talked about this back in chapter 1. You remember that? Where several times it was repeated that they had no grain offering, they had no drink offering or libation. That was a big deal. It was repeated often there. And the grain, new wine, and oil are mentioned here specifically. And they were mentioned specifically in the call to repentance in verse 14. Because God was sending a message. He was saying something through that. Notice again in verse 13 of chapter 2. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And listen, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Do you know what he's getting at here? you know what he's communicating here? Their privilege to come before the Lord and to, to bring in their day, to bring a grain offering, a drink offering. These are means in which they would offer sacrifice to God out of gratitude. They were thanksgiving offerings. They were uh, the ways they could come back to God and say, thank you, Lord, here. you've given me this. Let me give some of it back to show appreciation. It wasn't like God's storehouses were empty in heaven. And he's saying, I'm kind of out of grain. Can you guys bring some up with you? I mean, that's obviously not it at all. The fact that they had lost the opportunity to come and bring these offerings was indicative of where their hearts were at. God says, in your hearts, you're not bringing me these offerings out of love for me. Why should I allow you to do it in reality and physically? See the point? It was a tangible consequence. They weren't doing it in their hearts. So God said, fine, you won't do it with your hands either. Just to show you where things are at. But here he says in Joel 2.13, if you will be right with me, I will restore a relationship. And one of the ways you'll see that clearly is I'll provide for you so that you can come and give to me. See the connection there? He didn't give it to them so they'd have some perfunctory sacrifice that they had to carry out just to show that they were thankful for the plague being taken away. No, this was a means for them to express love for God. A tangible way to do that. Just as we're called today in many ways to tangibly express our love for God, not because he demands or requires those things to make him happy, but they are means that make us happy as we serve the Lord by serving one another, by giving to him, by sharing the gospel, by seeking to be obedient. God would restore to them in those days their, one of their key means of worship. And this is the restoration, brothers and sisters, that, that truly matters, right? Again, if you remember in Psalm 51, what is it that burdened David's heart so much? Why was the issue of his sin such a a weight to carry? What was it he ultimately wanted? Why did he want to be forgiven? Why did he want his sin removed? You remember? To be right with God again. Remember, he said, create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Make me to know joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That was the problem. He had lost it. It was gone. That's all that mattered to him. It's being restored to God. And for the one whose heart is truly rended, that is the thing that will drive you. You know, if there's anything that should stick out to us from Joel, it's God's eagerness to bring restoration. It is his desire to abundantly bless because Joel 2 shows us as many places in Scripture that it is God's nature to reconcile no matter what sin we've committed against him if we would repent and turn from that sin. God would reconcile because God's a God who restores. He's a God who forgives. 
Brothers and sisters, I would hope as we look at Joel 2 that you don't get caught up in the details so much or all the, the chiasm and all that stuff that we talked about to miss the point that we should be praising our God for this. Should we not? Can we not thank Him for His reconciliation towards us? Can we not stand in amazement that in order to achieve that reconciliation, He would even send His Son to make a way possible for us to be reconciled? That song we sang earlier, it couldn't happen any other way. God had to make a means. In fact, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5 for a minute. We'll close in this passage. 2 Corinthians 5, it's among passages in Scripture, probably one of the most clear and demonstrating God's heart for reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll be reading verses 17 to 21. Paul begins verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What word do you see repeated there a lot? Reconcile, right? Reconciliation. Five different times. You know, so many people look at the Bible and they say, you know, what, what kind of God would bring such harsh judgment? What, what kind of God would bring a massive swarm of locusts so that the men, the women, even the children would have nothing to eat? People that he called his people. What kind of God would dry up the trees and the land and the rivers, leaving the people with no food or water? What, what kind of God would bring such harm and devastation? Upon people, poverty and hardship and trials and suffering. What kind of God would do that? You know, but we read Second Corinthians 5. I think the question really should be, what kind of just God lets sinners live at all? What kind of infinite God would have anything to do with us? What kind of a God would want for eternity to have infinite fellowship with us? A holy and perfect God with no sin. What kind of a God would become a man and sacrifice himself and suffer a humiliating death on a cross in order to make that reconciliation through forgiveness possible? What kind of God would do that? What kind of God would would run from heaven's gates to our dirty streets? What kind of God would have arms open wide to embrace the one who's repented from their sin? What kind of God would, would hug and kiss and show emotion to someone like that? What kind of God would humble himself to that degree? What kind of God would do that? What kind of God indeed would invite us to his home as his children forever? A God who loves to reconcile. A God who loves to forgive As one pastor put it, we don't have to talk God into saving sinners. He doesn't have to be convinced of that. It's his nature to do it. Again, Paul said, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. I'm willing to bet there are some here that that could not be said of you, that you aren't reconciled to God, that you aren't right with him, that you have not admitted to him that you are a sinner. Again, not just that you have sinned, but that you are a sinner, one who's in rebellion against him. That you've not yet confessed that sin to God. That you've not yet shown a desire to be forgiven from it. You've not yet resolved to truly turn from your sin, to place your trust in Christ, to commit to live for him. Because again, the first person to seek peace in a quarrel is the offending party, right? God has done his part and he stands waiting See if you will do yours. He stands ready to offer reconciliation, ready to forgive, to lovingly receive you as a son or daughter. It is up to you at this point to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't live another moment as his enemy. 
Romans 5.10 calls us that. You may say, well, enemy is such a strong word. I don't see myself living in some active, violent rebellion against God. Let me ask you this question. If you could sin without ever being caught, if you could sin without ever, ever suffering the consequences for that sin in any way, would you still sin? The honest answer to that question will tell you if Jesus is ultimately your treasure or if something else is. Remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love God with what? With all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Friend, don't live another moment rejecting His offer of eternal life. As Paul said, I say to you, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God now while you can. Romans 5.10, again, it says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And you know, brothers and sisters, in looking at Joel 2 and spending time in that passage, it, you know, I hope that you are moved to give God praise for the fact that He is such a reconciling God, that He's a God who desires to restore, that He offers reconciliation to us as unworthy unworthy sinners you know as paul said too that our motivation we should also be motivated by the fact of letting others know about this great reconciler i so appreciate bob and steve and the ministry that they are seeking to encourage us to participate in because that's a ministry of reconciliation we're telling the world that there's a god who stands ready to forgive but they need to recognize and admit and own up to their sin and turn to Him. Because the King's coming. He's coming with judgment in His wake. He'll judge His friends, but He will save those who've been reconciled to Him. And so we need to bring that message that God now is offering peace, but only for a short time. We need to make sure everyone hears that message. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, how grateful or I am, how grateful we are that you are the great reconciler and that you sent Christ in order to bring about a reconciliation. For Lord, we, we would not first seek you. We did not first seek you. But you sought us. Lord, we thank you that you did not Abandon us. We thank you for what you've shown here to your people, Lord, in Joel, Joel 2, that, that you offer, Lord, to them, if they would but turn from their sin to be reconciled, not only to bless them with, with uh, riches and, and health, and, Lord, but to bless them with you. Lord, I pray, God, that you would move in us to Lord, praise you as you deserve for this and to proclaim your goodness to those around us, that they can be reconciled to you. What a message. Lord, we pray and thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.